Welcome to Race and Democracy, a podcast on the intersection between race, democracy, public policy, social justice, and citizenship. We are pleased to have with us Victoria DeFrancesco Soto, who's Director of Civic Engagement and a lecturer at the LBJ School of Public Affairs, um, a political scientist by training uh, with an expertise in politics, um, especially Latino, Latinx politics. And we're going to have a conversation really about the state of uh, Latino politics vis-a-vis um, American democracy, the 2020 election, what happened in the 2020 midterms, and really immigration and how immigration has been used as a wedge issue um, in all sorts of ways, a wedge issue uh, between Latinos and whites, but also Latinos and other people of color. This idea that Latinos, um, whether they might be from Mexico or from Honduras or Nicaragua, are stealing American jobs or stealing American birthright and entitlement including uh, harming people of color. So we want to talk about um, all of that. And really, my, my, my first question to you, um, Vicki, is, um, you know, what is Latina and Latino, Latinx politics? You teach a course on this. You teach a graduate seminar on this. What is it? Right. So uh, first of all, thank you so much for inviting me to be a part of this podcast Latinx, I I think I want to take a a, a step back first, because when we are talking about Latino with the X at the end, it really um, is a multidimensional identity. And it's one that we really have to ground in generations. So it is very much one that is affiliated with youth. If I had to put a number on it, I would say 18 to 29. The other aspect of Latinx, different from Latino, Latina, Hispanic, is that um, it is a rejection of the status quo. It is a rejection of um, these notions of gendered identity that can be repressive to our LGBTQIA folks. So uh, the Spanish language is gendered like other romance languages. So it either ends with an A or an O. So this new generation of of Latinx are rejecting that and saying, you are not going to gender me. I am going to define myself. So it's one of asserting one's own identity. And, and I think it's interesting in thinking about Latinx identity, the Latino youth identity, more broadly speaking, in today's political world. Um, We're living in a political moment, the Trump political moment, where there's a lot of um, divisiveness. There's a lot of chunking up of in-group, out-group, black, white, Latino, um, Asian, immigrant, non-immigrant. So I think that the Latinx have really found their voice in this moment because they reject that um, inclusivity that has become a trademark of this moment, and just more generally of group identities, which tend to be very, um, um, you know, constraining. So I think in terms of what is Latinx, one word is that it's broad and it's inclusive. That's great. Um, Before even getting down into what the impact is going to be in these elections, how does race figure into that Latinx identity? Especially when I think about Latin America, um, if we're talking about sort of uh, uh, 
Brazil or if we're talking about um, um, Chile or Argentina, I think about sort of differences between um, Mexico, uh, uh, Nicaragua, um, Puerto Rico, Dominican Republic, vis-a-vis some people are defining themselves as Afro-Latinx or Afro-Latino versus some who seem um, to be very excited about just the Latino identity, and then others who really seem to be excited about a more Western identity and say, you know, we are basically Europeans. Um, um, we, we, are, we are basically white. And so what about those sort of tensions within that identity? And, and they exist, absolutely, where, uh, you know, there are some Afro-Latinos who say, you know, this is distinct than the broader Latinx identity. Um, ultimately, though, I think it is coming down to generation and to youth, where younger Latinos see more fluidity across identities, be those um, sexual gender identities, be those racial and ethnic identities. So it's a little bit more of a catch-all. But at the same time, you know, coming from, um, you know, my background in political psychology and understanding the importance of social group identities in our behavior, we can't just say, all right, we're going to have one umbrella term for everything and your individual sub-identities don't matter. We can never let that go because they do. They are more particular identifiers. But in terms of broadening, um, helping erase maybe divisions that existed beforehand, I think that maybe an Afro-Latino and a more European Latino are seeing more alike than not than previous generations of Chicanos and Boricuas did. Mm. And when you think about those Chicanos and Boricuas, how do they fit into this new Latinx identity? Because I know being from New York, I grew up around uh, Puerto Ricans and Dominicans who were very proud of a very specific kind of identity um, that was neither on some levels black nor white, but sometimes mixes of all of those yeah. things, but very political too. Um, how does that fit in to this new Latinx? So I see the Latinx as a descendant, a direct descendant of um, the Boricua identity, you know, the Young Lords, for example, and the Chicano identity, um, more so than, say, Hispanic or Latino, because if we remember back to the 1960s, Chicano and Boricua were politicized identities. It wasn't just a descriptor of, um, I'm of Mexican-American descent, or I'm of Puerto Rican descent. It's, I am of Mexican-American descent, and I am pushing against the political status quo. So the Latinx identity has that same political component, but I would say the one difference of the Chicano and the Boricua is it's a little bit more expansive, and I think it it seeks to encompass both types of, of or, or not just both, but multiple types of Latino subgroup identities, be it Central American or South American, Mexican, Cuban, Dominican. So I think that's the difference, but also the similarity from that 1960s generation. So it's a continuation of that politicization of identity. Absolutely. Um, elections. Uh, when we think about the Latino or Latinx vote, um, I want to ask you about 2020, but also 2016 and 2018 in the sense of um, what is the power of the Latinx vote? Um, why didn't it seem that they came out um, in robust enough numbers when we think about 2016? Did we see an uptick in 2018 that, that gives us hope? Um, uh, 
immigration is such a web wedge issue, but this president has used specific anti-immigration um, and anti-Latinx rhetoric um, that has really satisfied his base. <laughs> and, and in a way, um, I think, you know, Latinos and Latinx populations are, are one of the key populations in our democracy who are really being utilized um, to fom foment all kinds of outrage politics, right? And, and we need citizenship, we need immigration reform, all these different things. So what role, yet we don't see the, the Latinx vote as robust as we might like. And we're talking about citizens. We're not even talking about people who are undocumented. We're talking about in the state of Texas, we've got many who are unregistered and just nationally who are American citizens who are not registered to vote. I... Sometimes I just I'm speechless when I start to think about it. But I, I think it's important to to remember how President Trump launched his campaign. I, you know, it's seared in my memory how he he came down the escalators of Trump Tower and essentially equated Mexicans with rapists. And that has been a consistent theme throughout the mistake that um, many Latinos that that some of us in the um, in the, the political commentary circles and I think the Democratic Party made is that they thought that was going to be enough, a dislike of Trump, an anger toward this very ugly rhetoric. But it wasn't enough in 2016. We did not see that Latino wave materialize like we expected it to, um, which is the bad news. But the good news is that in 2018, we saw uh, Latino and Latinx mobilization from the ground up, focus on giving Latinx something to push for and something to believe in, not just something to vote against. Because what we saw in 2016 is that isn't enough. Hate by itself is not going to get you to the polls. You need to have some hope. You need to, to want to change the system. You want to see minimum wage go up. You want to see uh, Medicaid for all. You want to see all these different things. So I think in 2018, we did see a spike in the Latino vote go up. Um, we also saw, um, and relatedly, a spike in the youth vote. And when we're talking about the youth vote, we're pretty much talking about the Latino vote because Latinos are disproportionately a young population. Um, over a third of our 18 to 29-year-olds are of Latino descent. So in 18, we saw that. Um, but I think in going to 2020, a very big mistake is to assume, okay, they came out once, you know, it's, it's going to keep going. Young folks, minority folks, can easily feel disengaged. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a very frustrating context that they are living in right now. And so... And why do they feel so disengaged, especially when we hear all the predictions that we're going to be a brown country, meaning blacks and Latinos and non-whites are going to be the majority. But the biggest uh, part of that non-white majority are going to be Latinx Absolutely. citizens. And again, it's very important to say we're talking about citizens. So for a second, let's leave aside undocumented, which we are going to get to. But citizens, just these are Americans. I know that they are also proudly Mexican and Central American, Puerto Rican, but they're Americans. W why aren't they exercising their power of citizenship? Right. So regrettably, it's the same story for um, black, white and brown. So poor folks don't vote. It's um, one of these facets of, you know, you don't have as much stake in, in things if you're a renter, if you're unemployed, if you have lower levels of education. So 
it's it's just a matter of where you are in society. So that's why it's so important to have mobilization as a subsidy, because if you're lower on these different items, you need to be pushed to see, you know what, you may not own a home, you may not be paying a mortgage here, but you're invested in this community. So I think that is what we saw in 18, and it just needs to be ramped up for 2020. And, and we we're just talking about the demographic growth. By 2030, here in Texas, Latinos will be a majority of the population. This is just Texas, right? And we're already majority minority state. But this is a trend that we're going to see across the country. And and this is why um, it is so important to start the habit now of becoming politically involved. Because once we do have that might in terms of numbers, we need to match it with the political clout that we see demographically. My next question is really about um, achieving a broader-based democracy. And, and you know how can we achieve a democracy where, when we think about something like immigration, um, immigration is not used as a wedge issue. And really, immigration is seen, especially um, Latinx immigration to the United States, as something that's hugely positive economically and culturally and socially and politically. So um, um, immigrants um, are not committers of crime. They are not people who somehow disrupt in a negative way our democracy, but they really enhance our productivity. They enhance our culture, both politically, but also when we think about uh, food, when we think about music, when we think about um, the society. And we owe so much to, I mean, all immigration, but especially when we think about Latinx immigration, we would not be the United States of America that we are now without all of these people who are coming from Mexico, who are coming from Central America, who are coming from Latin America, we just would be a different country and a poorer country. Um, how can we transform both that dialogue, that narrative that's anti-immigration, but also our institutions to reflect that reality? We are a nation of immigrants. You know, I um, am the descendant of Mexicans my, on my mother's side, and then Italian and Jewish folks on my dad's side. So I have the Ellis Island, you know, on that side 100 years ago, and then the recent immigrants from the border of 20 years ago. So, I mean, we are a nation of immigrants. You're going to be hard-pressed to find someone who says they're not aside from Native Americans. For better or for worse, um, this is nothing new. It comes in waves. So one of the courses I teach is in immigration, in U.S. immigration. And, and I go back to the 1700s to understand how what we're seeing today is a pattern. We have these restrictionist and expansionist waves. And right now, we are in this restrictionist wave, much like in the early 1920s when the quota laws were put into effect. But in terms of how do we get past that, I think in this particular moment that we're living, um, there are three things, and I think a lot about this. How do we get past this immigration wedge issue? And, and these three things need to happen simultaneously. First of all, you have to humanize. It's not just the dirty immigrant, the criminal immigrant, the bad immigrant. This is a person. This is a person um, who has loved ones, who has dreams, who has aspirations just like you do. Show the faces tell the stories. You know, I think within the mix of ne negative rhetoric, um, when we saw the height of the family separation and we would hear those leaked 
audio tapes and we would see the video, even your, your pretty hardcore immigration restrictionists, they were taken aback. And we saw the reversal of family separation. We still have a long ways to go. But I think even though the crisis point of family separation has, has passed, we need to keep humanizing the people who are at our borders. And I think um, a lot of media outlets have done tremendous work in that, um, Vox, for example, um, but humanize, humanize, humanize. The second is show the numbers. So for the people who, who you may not be able to get in terms of the empathy quotient, show them in black and white the, the benefit of having immigrants in this country. Um, it is a net boon for our economy, uh, having our DACA recipients in this country, and, and I'm quoting numbers not from some left-leaning think tank. I'm and DACA quoting, is deferred arrival. Yes, deferred action <laughs> for childhood, childhood arrivals. arrivals. Yes, okay. So those individuals who were brought without legal status but were brought as children were able to apply for a deferment of deportation. The Cato Institute, libertarian, right-leaning think tank, did a study, and they showed that $350 billion would be lost if we sent the DACA kids back. And in tax revenue alone, we're talking about $90 billion. So for the folks who go, oh, the immigrants, you know, they drain our economy. No, they don't. They make us better and stronger. And I would... Um, you know, I would suggest to your listeners to check out sites like New American Economy. It's um, a site that does really neat state and local level work that maps out the economic impact of uh, immigrant communities across the United States and shows the positive net economic impact that they have. So numbers, empathy, and the last one, which is probably the hardest one, is we need to disentangle immigration from drugs. So, uh, yes, drugs come across our border and immigrants come across our border, but they're not, they're not the same thing. These are two separate entities, sometimes the same bad people who traffic, who do human trafficking and do drug trafficking are the same criminal entities, but the immigrant it, himself or herself is not a, a drug runner, as I think a lot of the, the popular rhetoric would like to make you believe. So... Um, at every chance I get, I disentangle. I try to disentangle, you know, building a border is not going to stop drugs because you see that rhetoric start to say, uh, a border wall is going to keep the immigrants and the drugs out. No, factually it's not. And also let's separate separate out the two and think about different strategies for drug interdiction and namely how do we prevent um, folks from getting addicted to drugs here in the United States. Why don't we talk about what the pull factors are and separate out that from immigration? But again, um, probably the hardest of the three. So I think for the the short term, it's humanizing and keep showing the economic numbers. Well, and this this really leads me to my next question because I think race and the color of immigrants um, play such a big role because we also have West African immigrants, but among the Latinx population, we have some who could pass for black, um, who, whether they're from Cuba, whether they're from Nicaragua, whether they're from Mexico, mm -hmm. who are absolutely Mexican, but they are darker skinned or brown skinned. We have some who could pass for white, who, who are absolutely <laughs> Latinx, speak Spanish, multiple generations, love and are proud of that culture. But for all intents and purposes, we in the United States would perceive them to be white. Mm -hmm. um, 
What, what about that, that tension? Because in a lot of ways, the question I have is about sort of black and Latinx alliances. And we've seen these political alliances historically. You know, Martin Luther King Jr.'s Poor People's Campaign, um, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee aligned itself with Cesar Chavez and, 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 and agricultural workers in the 1960s. We've seen in cities like Houston, at times, Black Brown. Um, we've seen Chicanos and Black Panthers. Mm-hmm. We've seen this, y- the Young Lords. Chicago. We've seen this, Chicago. Yeah. Um, but then we've also seen tensions where instead of that Black and Latinx population getting together, um, there's a lot of recriminations. You know, recriminations where Latinx folks say, well, the blacks don't want to um, um, create more room uh, at the top in terms of elected officials and, and, and things that they have. And, and, and black folks saying, well, these folks are racist, anti-black racist against us. And we've seen tensions in Los Angeles. We've seen we've seen these tensions. So what what about the prospects of a really more formal and formidable alliance? Because it seems that those two groups got together, especially with the demographic changes that are happening, the country could be utterly transformed. And so so many of those constituents are people who are poor and are living in segregated neighborhoods, who don't have mental health care, who don't have who don't have all these different things that really comprise citizenship. Right. And and um, interestingly enough, the fastest growing Latino population is in the South. So you're, you're traditionally, um, you know, black area, your 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 Atlanta, Georgia's, your North Carolinas. This is where you're seeing the Latino population. So the potential for um, a political alliance is there. It's 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 ripe. You know, and and having been a student of of coalitional politics, you you see the good, the bad, and the ugly. That being said, I'm cautiously optimistic. Uh, more than anything because of the new generation. Um, the new generation of both uh, Latinx and, and Black youth that have been living in more integrated societies where, you know, we're not in a racial or ethnic paradise, but a lot of the structures that, that kept us apart um, both physically, institutionally, and also identity-wise, have been decreasing. So we started off talking about the umbrella term of Latinx, that it's a little bit broader. So it allows for saying, okay, you, you may be a little darker than I am, but we're still part of this Latinx. Uh, in terms of social spaces, um, people are going to school together. They're interacting more. So I think just that interaction physically and also in terms of identity, I think is going to allow for more of an alliance. That being said, I, I think both parts, like in a relationship, right, you you need to understand each other. So, so the Latinx community just can't be sympathetic to Black Lives Matter. Like, hey, I, I, I get you. I feel you. I'm right there with you. But there needs to be an understanding of the policy issue. There needs to be a little bit of history work done here. And on the side of black youth and, 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 you know, black folks is not just saying I'm there for the immigrant rights, I get you, but understanding the specifics and the the trials and tribulations of these immigrant populations. So I think that in order for this relationship that is really on the cusp of something very beautiful, it has to be taken to a deeper level of understanding, not just, I gotcha, yeah, we're both Democrats or we're both progressives, but... um, both sides need to do their homework and put in the work to make the relationship work. We can build a United States of, of <laughs> yes. Afro-Latino America. That's what it's becoming anyway. But I think the Black Lives Matter 
agenda does exactly what you're talking about. It talks about, and these were black activists in the context of Ferguson and, and these police shootings against black bodies, um, really talked about immigration and talked about both uh, Latinx immigration and to stand in solidarity, but really dissecting those issues very, very clearly and how that's connected to not just West African immigration, but citizenship for all. Mm-hmm. So really the fight for DACA, the fight for DAPA is a fight for citizenship for everyone. Um, and it should be at the forefront of, of any progressive Absolutely. social movement. Um, we're here at University of Texas, Austin. I want to ask you a question about our campus. Um, how do you think we're doing? You know, we, we've had um, and I've talked to uh, my Latinx students, um, faculty, staff who talk about uh, the paucity of numbers here. You know, our numbers, this is a premier university. Our numbers, whether it's students, whether it's faculty, whether it's administrators, whether it's staff, are not reflective of the Latinx population, both in this city and the state of Texas. Um, what are we doing well? What can we do better? We do have Mexican-American studies here. You're an affiliate faculty. Um, and, and they're in a building that's right there with African and African diaspora studies. So there are inroads and not every university has Mexican-American studies as a department, um, um, a cultural center, these different things. Um, what are we doing right? But what should we be doing uh, as we move forward right here at University of Texas? Right. That, this is an excellent question. Uh, so I, I think we need to take stock of, of where we are. Um, so this year... The Center for Mexican-American Studies is going to be turning, I think, 40. So um, the University of Texas, um, from the outgrowth of the civil rights movement, uh, was receptive to the movement of Chicano activists. You know, at the time, that that was the word. It was Chicano uh, Mexican-Americans here in Texas to stake a claim here on this campus that we are a presence and we need to have a space. And so the university you know, forward thinking for its time, did establish that center. Fast forward about 35, 40 years, they then established the Mexican-American and Latino Studies Center. So here, where it's not only a community center, which was what the Center for Mexican-American Studies is, but also to have that curriculum to enhance the knowledge of the Mexican-American and Latino experience. So I think that having the community component together with the curricular one is very important. Where I think uh, we need to grow as an institution, and I put myself in this need to grow as well, is better understand um, what we need in terms of Latinx resources. I am not as young as I used to be, (laughs) and so um, I have trouble understanding what the particulars of the Latinx identity are. Um, I was just in D.C. with some folks from... um, very well-known Latino organizations from across the country, and we're all kind of in our in our 40s, 50s, and, and we're talking about how we ourselves, who are Latino, born and raised, have trouble understanding what those needs are and what we can do to help these generations below us. So I think that the University of Texas, along with other um, Latino-serving organizations need to take stock and not just say, um, okay, well, we, we knew what we had to do with the Chicanos and the, for the Boricuas and for the Hispanics. Mm-hmm. This is what we're going to do for you. We need to listen to what these students of ours are telling us um, rather than just be professors and teach them or be administrators and create programs. But I think we're at a moment where there, there is a shift. We are we are no longer in the moment of just the Hispanic and the Latino, but we're in a new politicized moment. And we 
we need to be supportive of those students and provide them the resources, curricular and institutional, for them to thrive. And, and do you think we need to accept m- more students, recruit more faculty, Absolutely. have more more staff? Oh, that um, goes without saying. Okay, so 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 part of it is like the proof will be in the numbers, our actions, how many. Um, what kind of Latinx thriving, robust presence we have on campus. And and I would probably say the the larger city of Austin, because we need Latinx entrepreneurs. We need Latinx um, leaders in the city of Austin. And we have that, but we don't have enough when we think about representation here. You know, and the thing is that um, if you build it, they will come. So if we listen to the needs of these students and we really build from the ground up, then more students will come. More students will want to apply. Um, Faculty of color will want to come. Um, Entrepreneurs in the Austin area will want to come. So I think it's it's something that has to be obviously from the top down, they have the strategic plan and whatnot, but also from the bottom up. Because if we're providing resources that aren't necessarily what the students and the faculty need, then that disconnect is going to prevent the growth of the Latino and Latinx community here on campus. You know, my my final question is really about the future. And when I think about um, Latinx politics, and right now we're heading towards a Democratic primary where we have um, Julian Castro, uh, former mayor of San Antonio, uh, former HUD secretary, is running for president. And if he ran for president, he's 44, 45 if he if he won the presidency, uh, that would be a game changer. I think about what happened with Barack Obama in 2008 and how when Obama was inaugurated and even when he won and basked in the victory in Grant Park, it really was transformative when we think about race relations. Um, my first the first part of this question, what would it mean, um, especially post Trump, to have the first um, Latinx president um, in somebody like Julian Castro? Um, and do you think it's possible? Do you think it's possible for, to, to have in 2021, inaugurated January 20th, uh, for the first time in American history, a, a Latino uh, a Latinx president? I do. And and maybe I'm, I'm being overly optimistic. I have been accused of that. But uh, I think it is possible for a couple of reasons. I think uh, the the outlook of our of our electorate. We have an increasingly diverse electorate. You know, yes, there is a very strong um, right-leaning electorate that that may not be accepting of a Julian Castro or a Kamala Harris, but there is a growing electorate that is, as we saw in 2018. The second piece of it is there's so many people running that it's going to be really hard to say, okay, yeah, this person's got it in the back. The other part, which coincides with um, minority status, is youth. And we're seeing a hunger, um, not just among minority populations, but I think the general American population, to not go with just the, the experience and the age and the wisdom that comes with age, but actually invigorate our political system with a little bit of youth. And we're seeing that our candidates of color are disproportionately young. So, um, you know, I think the odds are tough for anyone at, at this stage of the game. But do I think that a Julian Castro as president is um, is a potential reality? I do. And when we think about Latinx populations and leadership, where do you see it going? You just said 2030, you know, that's it. That's a big di- But the power connected to that 
that demographic explosion isn't necessarily aligned right now. When we think about the next 10, 15 years, where do you see it in terms of um, Latinx real leadership, political, but also economic leadership and also really moral leadership? I think about Cesar Chavez and I think about Dolores Huerta, who's going to be here. Uh, um, Where do we think, you know, Latinx activists have given us moral leadership um, um, for centuries in this country, which a lot of times get gets overlooked. But where do you see us going, especially now with the the new, this younger insurgent group who's really thinking about identity, even Lat- Latino and Latina identity, Latinx identity in intersectional ways within the Latin yes. <laughs> American community, which is dizzying, which is dizzying, but, but really apropos, I think. And, and it really... Um it widens the landscape of who can get involved at the same time. But if I had to pick one poster child of what, you know, kind of the, the next generation of the Latinx leadership looks like, I would say um, when when you see those um, DACA students, um, the dreamers, as, as we call them, out protesting in front of the White House or taking to the streets, that's, that's the leadership. These are these... Um, I'm not going to say kids, but these youth that are fearless, you know, they are undocumented. So technically, especially under the current administration, they could be deported. But they are out there making their voices heard. They're on, um, you know, the, the, the radio, on TV, protesting, saying, I am here and I am pushing for a more inclusive America. I am, I am pushing for the democratic ideals of this country, which is my country. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, I, that's who I see in terms of the Latinx identity. You know, they're um, not in the necessarily the, the Dolores Huertas who are out there in the fields, but I think they're out there in the streets protesting. And our students who are in our classrooms, I would like to think as well, Peniel, that um, they're, they're hungry and they, um, they're not satisfied with the answers that they're getting. And so I think that disruption is coming from this Latinx generation. And that brings us all back to what Dr. King talked about in terms of creating this beloved community, right? And we, we, we should think of Latinx activists and young people and communities as really at the center as well um, of creating that beloved community. Absolutely. They, um, the notion of boundaries is, is minimal for them. They see, um, they see coalition as a natural fit. Whereas before, you know, groups might be a little bit more skeptical and you have to take the political calculus. But here I just I see a different worldview when it comes to politics and Latinx youth. Well, thank you for joining us, Professor Victoria DeFrancesco Soto, um, Director of Civic Engagement and Lecturer at the LBJ School of Public Affairs and Affiliate Faculty uh, in Mexican-American Studies. Um, Thank you so much for for being here. This was so much fun. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode, and you can check out related content on Twitter at Peniel Joseph. That's P-E-N-I-E-L-J-O-S-E-P-H. And our website, csrd.lbj.utexas.edu. And the Center for Study of Race and Democracy is on Facebook as well. This podcast was recorded at the Liberal Arts Development Studio at the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you.